in the book of Leviticus, and I remember uh, as a young man thinking, well, that's one, one book I would never preach on if God ever called me to preach. Because people would joke about Leviticus as being a good treatment for insomnia. Uh, because there's so many repetitive parts to it, and you have all the description of the uh, the sacrifices that have so many of the same elements to them, and it just seems to go on and on with rules and regulations, and uh, what could possibly be very interesting about that? And we would just have to reassure ourselves that, well, God must have his reasons for including that in the Scripture. We'll take, we'll take his word for it. We'll trust that. Well, as, uh, as over the years have progressed through um, preaching through the book of Genesis and then Exodus, the question in my mind was, oh, I don't want to go to Leviticus, do I really? Uh, maybe it's time to go for a New Testament book or, or study in the Psalms or something like that. Well, Pastor Mike was already preaching the New Testament, and Pastor Paul's preaching in the Psalms, so what am I to do? And uh, so I just thought, well, we'll do a cursory look at Leviticus. We'll just kind of glaze over it, take a few principles uh, out of Leviticus that are, that are timeless and, and universal. And you know what? As I've gotten into it, I couldn't do that couldn't be so cursory. Uh, certainly, we could actually dig deeper. The, the, the more I go into it, the more I think, oh, wow, I could, I could take this one passage and make five messages out of it if I really wanted to. Um, but I don't think we want to do that. So we're, we're looking, we are still looking for the principles, right? There are many aspects of, of uh, Old Testament, especially in this portion that we refer to as the law, that are uh, that are particularly unique to Israel. And we are encountering parts of that especially today. And so as I looked at today's passage, I thought, oh my goodness, how do we, how do we preach that for, for us today? Because there are things that, are, that I believe are really unique to, to Israel. So what are we to draw from it? Well, in, in the little blurb in the newsletter, which you may or may not have had a chance to, to see yet, um, I kind of ad- addressed this just a little bit. So I'll, just, I'll share with you what I, what I wrote there in case you haven't seen it. Um, just as a little bit of a, a precursor to the approach to this message. It says, if, if God is indeed Lord, that means He is the one who gives the orders and is to be obeyed unquestionably. As we study the book of Leviticus and the Mosaic code, law code, we learn much about God's values which reveal His character. And many of God's rules for Israel represent His timeless and universal truths or His values. Uh, this is a fact that can be verified by their establishment before the giving of the law code or by their repetition in the New Testament. But there are also rules that God gave to Israel that were not intended for all people at all times. Some of these are related to health and hygiene, revealing God's scientific knowledge that superseded their limited human understanding at the time. Some of those concerns are rendered unnecessary by later developments and are not readdressed in the New Testament. Others appear to have been intended to define the relationship between God and His chosen people, to set them apart from the other nations. So whether or not the Israelites understood God's reasons for any of His commands, they were expected to obey them. Sometimes God's rules or commands just do not make sense to us. We have a limited perspective and are tempted at such times to question God's goodness or even His correctness about certain things. We are tempted to do what is right in our own eyes. That is when we must return to the basic principle that God is our Lord, which means Master. 
In the words of the old gospel song, we need to simply trust and obey. And that's something I believe we can take from this text today, even as we see some of those elements that I believe were really unique to God's establishment of a a relationship with Israel as a unique people among the nations. Still, we can see that God had his own reasons, and the basis of their relationship with him was that they would trust and obey. So we're going to look today at the importance of embracing God's code. We're in Leviticus chapter 19, and uh, I remind you that at the very beginning of the chapter, chapter 19 verses 1 and 2, we really have the setup for this whole chapter that follows where God spoke to Moses saying, speak to all the congregation of the people of Israel and say to them, you shall be holy for I Yahweh, your God, am holy. I'll invite you, by the way, to find paper and a pen. I don't have the the convenient outline for you today. So find some scrap paper and a pen and uh, get your Bible ready. Um, Open up your own copy of basic instructions before leaving earth and, um, and follow along with me because there are several passages today. But the outline will be up on the screen for you. You can, take, you can copy that down. So Leviticus 19, 1 and 2, that's our setup, okay? These are the instructions from God to His people Israel that they should be holy or consecrated to Him, separate, different, because He Himself is unique, separate, different from anything and everyone else. And so he wanted the Israelites to demonstrate what it is to, to be a people who live God's way, who live according to the code of the true and living God, who is righteous and just and loving, which makes them entirely different from any of the other false gods that the nations worshipped. And so now he's telling them how he wants them to live even on a daily basis so as to reflect his values and his character And ultimately, this is to be a testimony to all the other nations who looked on. And we see throughout these passages that others are invited. It wasn't meant to be uh, Israel to be an exclusive nation, but for Israel to be a unique and different nation that would reveal the one true and living God to all the others so that they too might come to him. And so it was really for evangelistic purposes that God wanted Israel to live differently. So we come to these instructions in chapter 19, verses starting at verse 19, because we've studied the ones prior. And so 19.19 is where we pick it up into the end of the chapter. And here we have this assertion once again in verse 19 where he says, you shall keep my statutes. And now he's going to deliver a whole additional list of his statutes, his rules for living for the Israelite people. So God called Israel to be holy like him by embracing a different code. Let's read this passage here. I want to read verses 19 through 37. You will see that there are some rather unique elements here. Some are a little bit striking to us, uh, and as we go, I'll offer a little bit of explanation for them, but I'm not going to delve deeply into every one of them because I do believe that some of these were Uh, a little bit unique to the people of Israel. We'll discuss why that's important. Leviticus 19, 19 through 37. You shall keep my statutes. You shall not let your cattle breed with a different kind. Already we're thinking, wow, that's 
not something we've necessarily been paying attention to. Right? Well, maybe we don't need to. You shall not sow your field with two kinds of seed, nor shall you wear a garment of cloth made of two kinds of material. You don't mix wool and cotton, for instance. Interesting. There's another one. If, if a man lies sexually with a woman who is a slave assigned to another man and not yet ransomed or given her freedom, a distinction shall be made. They shall not be put to death because she was not free. But, she shall, but he shall bring his compensation to the Lord to the entrance of the tent of meeting, a ram for a guilt offering. And the priest shall make atonement for him with the ram of the guilt offering before the Lord for his sin that he has committed, and he shall be forgiven for the sin that he has committed. Well, now that is interesting. What do we do with that? Well, brief explanation. It's a little bit complicated, but, but this is not a commentary on, God is not in this passage commenting on whether slavery is a good thing or a bad thing, but the reality is slavery was a part of the time and the culture, and here God is offering a protection. So here you have a slave girl who someone else has taken advantage of. She was promised to someone in marriage by the master, and now someone else has taken her. And so because there was no exchange as, as the, the issue about her not being a free, she had not been freed or ransomed and so on, is that her status wasn't the same. So there wouldn't have been uh, money exchanged and all of the treaties and things that went on between, uh, between families that would formalize a betrothal, in which case this breach would result in the death penalty for those involved. But he's saying the death penalty won't be necessary here, but the man who took her has to make compensation. He has to bring a guilt offering. He has to acknowledge his sin. There are consequences for this. But then the assumption is that he then takes responsibility for her from that time on. It's just that the plans got altered from what the master thought was going to take place. All right, so verse 23, another situation. When you come into the land and plant any kind of tree for food, then you shall regard its fruit as forbidden. Interestingly, that word, that Hebrew word, literally would elsewhere be translated uncircumcised. Uncircumcised fruit. Three years it shall be forbidden to you, it shall not be eaten. And in the fourth year, all its fruit shall be holy, an offering of praise to the Lord. It's all given back to the Lord. But in the fifth year, you may eat of its fruit to increase its yield for you. I am the Lord your God. This reminder of God as their God, Yahweh, is unique. Well, what is uncircumcised fruit? What is the idea of this? This forbidden fruit, people have picked up on that, on that label and used it in other ways, as well as referencing the Garden of Eden. Well, as I've, I, I was a little bit perplexed by this as well. As I looked into some commentaries, I was reminded of some important facts, and that was that in the land of Canaan that God is talking about where they're entering, the cult worship, the pagan worship there was, was a fertility cult, and they had all kinds of fertility rites that were just really wicked and immoral, uh, worshiping Baal and the Asherim and so on, and so the, they attributed the productivity of the land to these acts of worship, to these false gods. 
And so uh, the opinion of the commentators, and, and I believe this makes perfect sense, is that God is telling the people, uh, any, you, we're not going to have any, you're not going to enjoy the, fr- the fruit of soil that has been dedicated to or expected to be blessed by these false gods until the land is in a sense cleansed, until enough time has passed, that it's very clear that the, that the produce, the productivity is a blessing from God and not from these false gods. And so those first few years after they enter the land, the things that grow, the things that produce fruit and so on, these trees, uh, they're, they're not to eat them. Now the idea of the circumcision, uh, there are others who suggest that as a matter of hu- husbandry, that they were to nip the fruit in the bud for those first three years. So that it was that trimming that's kind of the idea of the, the circumcision. And therefore, uh, no one would be tempted to partake of that of the fruit that was produced on that tree because it wasn't allowed to. But by the same token, God in his wisdom knew that when you do that to a young fruit tree, for instance, you actually strengthen the tree for future produce to be much greater. And so by the time they came around to the fourth and fifth year, the, pro- the produce would be much greater, the tree would be much healthier and, and much better than before, and that would be a provision from God as well. So that seems to be the idea. But there again, we go back to this basic principle that whether the people understood God's rationale or his reasons for it or not, they were to trust and obey because he's establishing a relationship with them as their God and they as his people. And that's why he finishes it off, that, that little instruction there at the end of verse 25, reminding them, I am Yahweh, your God. That kind of relates a little bit to the phrase that, that none of us like because of our natural human rebellious nature, because of our sin nature as children. We didn't like it when our parents gave us that answer because I'm your mother, that's why. Right? I want you to do such and such now, etc. But why? Because I'm your mother and I told you so, that's why. Because a mother understands sometimes that a child isn't going to understand all the reasoning and all the rationale behind it. And they don't need to. They just need to learn to trust their mother and obey. Right? And so there is a place for that. Because I said so. And here we have God telling his people that very thing. Just remember, I am Yahweh your God. And usually, very often, again and again, what's attached to that is, I am Yahweh your God who delivered you from slavery in the land of Egypt. So this is just kind of the abbreviated version. Just remember, I'm the one who saved you. And that's right that they should be reminded. Well, verse 26, you shall not eat any flesh with the blood in it. Full stop. You shall not interpret omens or tell, fut- or tell fortunes. Full stop. You shall not round off the hair on your temples or mar the edges of your beard. Antony, did you trim your beard today? Mm. Yeah, I trimmed mine yesterday. Hmm. What do we do about that? Verse 28, you shall not make any cuts on your body for the dead or tattoo yourselves. Reminder, I am Yahweh. Interesting. Do not profane your daughter by making her a prostitute, lest the land fall into prostitution and the land become full of depravity. There's a danger to the entire culture when even one young woman is 
degraded by this. 30. You shall keep my Sabbaths and reverence my sanctuary. I am Yahweh. Do not turn to mediums or necromancers. Do not seek them out and so make yourselves unclean by them. I am Yahweh your God. Don't look to witchcraft. Look to the Lord. 32. You shall stand up before the gray head and honor the face of an old man, and you shall fear your God. I am Yahweh. Wow. God attaches people's reverence for him to the respect they show to an older man. When a stranger sojourns with you in your land, in other words, a foreigner, a non-Israelite, you shall do him no wrong. You shall not do him wrong. You shall treat the stranger who sojourns with you as the native among you, and you shall love him as yourself. Remember that from our last study. For you were strangers in the land of Egypt. I am Yahweh your God. Remember, I'm the one who delivered you from slavery in Egypt. Do you remember that experience back in Egypt, what it was like? You remember that when dealing with the foreigner in your land. Verse 37 is kind of the bookend to the beginning of the chapter. You shall observe all of my statutes and all of my rules and do them. I am Yahweh. Well, so let's look at some of the things that we can take from this. We see that God called Israel to be holy, unique, like Him, by embracing a different code first that set them apart from the pagan societies around them. It set them apart from those pagan societies around them. Now, we might need to be reminded, I've alluded to some of it already, but uh, the Canaanite people uh, who had populated this land for hundreds of years now uh, were just truly wicked. They're, they're, they're pagan, you know, we, we throw around the word pagan today without a whole lot of understanding. We think of it as kind of a slang word that people use for people that they think that, you know, they just don't embrace the same religion or something like that. Pagan has very specific meaning, and this was the worst example of it among the people in Canaan. We've talked about this before. Uh, their, their rituals um, involved cutting themselves, involved um, orgies, to appeal to these gods of fertility. Uh, women and children were ritually raped. Babies were offered as sacrifices on the burning arms of, of the uh, idols of these false gods. Molech especially is referred to sometimes. And this, was a, this was an image built of, of metal or stone with a hollowed out belly in which a fire was stoked. And this God had its arms out like this, and they would lay their babies on these searing irons of these arms of this God to sacrifice them, to appeal to these gods for the, for the fertility of their land. This was wicked. This was evil. So don't fault God when you read his instructions to the Israelites to come in and to destroy the Canaanites and to drive them out and to have no mercy on them because they were wicked and cruel and grotesque. In their practices. And they had been for hundreds of years. And when God spoke to Abraham and promised that land to them, it had already been that way for a long time. 
And then God told Abraham, well, it's going to be 400 years before I give this land to your descendants because the Canaanites have not yet completely fulfilled their wickedness. In other words, God was giving a little bit more time, a little bit more opportunity where they could change, where they could repent, but in fact, he knew they were only going to get worse, that there would be no question as to the righteousness of their judgment when God's people entered the land. And so God rightly wants his people Israel to be very different, to be very distinct, to to not allow any of their lifestyle or their worship to look anything like these wicked pagan people. And so some of these rules refer to practices of those people that God wants Israel to do completely differently to distinguish themselves from them. So we see the non-mixing rules. And, and I, I believe, and most commentators believe, that this is, this is simply a, a, a constant daily reminder of the very principle of separation. There doesn't, doesn't appear to be any other moral issue involved in, in not having uh, cattle of different breeds uh, together. And it doesn't necessarily mean that there's something truly immoral about different types of seed uh, being sown in a field or different types of, 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 of yarn being used, woven together in the, same, in the same garment. These were just simply rules that God gave to establish His unique relationship with His people and to establish them as being consecrated to Himself, different from the nations around them, reminding them the principle of separation. Because the temptation... God knew it was going to be integration as they settled into this land. He did not want them to integrate because they would be carried away and tempted to worship false gods and, and no longer represent Him as the true and living God. Syncretism is, is, is such a common thing. Even when people, when Christian missionaries, uh, especially, I have to say this, I guess I have to lay fault where I believe it lies, especially as Catholic missionaries moved around the world in, in the past, in order to make people more willing to embrace Catholicism, they often created a blend of Catholicism with the religion of the land. And some of you have different cultural backgrounds where you've seen that, where you know that, that the traditional religions of, of the country have their own unique blend with Catholicism in that place. And that's referred to as syncretism. God doesn't want syncretism. He wants people to worship Him as the one and only true and living God in a way that is a consistent reflection of His true values and character and nature. So He wants them to understand the principle of separation. Uh, I, I want to direct you to Deut- Deuteronomy chapter 7. Again, you'll need to cut Turn to your own copy if you want to follow along with me. Deuteronomy chapter 7. I want to read a few verses there. Now, if you recall, Deuteronomy is the fifth book, right, in the, in the law. And so as you, uh, we have Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. By the time we come to Deuteronomy, we have a whole new generation of Israelites who were not among those that were delivered from the land of, Israel, of, of Egypt, right? That because of the disobedience to God in the, in the wilderness, God said, all of those, all this generation is going to die. It'll be the next generation that gets to go into the promised land. And so they wandered for those 40 years 
as the previous generations died off and the young ones uh, grew to adulthood. And so the book of Deuteronomy is, is the people of Israel, the new generation, standing camped essentially on the edge of the promised land. And Moses, just before God takes him, delivers to them a history and a re-instruction, a recap of God's law. So Deuteronomy kind of surveys all that came in the previous four books. He, he tells them about how you know, God chose Abraham and how, how they be, he promised the land and how they went into slavery in Egypt and how the time passed and God delivered them and brought them into the wilderness and delivered His law to them and, and made them His people and His God. And, and, and Moses tells this new generation, you have a choice. You can live according to the covenant that God has established with you and it will bring you life and prosperity or you can turn from the covenant, you can break the covenant, you can worship the gods of the peoples around you, you can ignore God's statutes, and it will bring death and destruction and occupation and slavery. You choose. Life or death. That's the book of Deuteronomy. So here we have in this, in this book, in this recapping book for a new generation, these instructions. Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 1. When Yahweh, your God, brings you into the land that you are entering to take possession of it and clears away the many nations before you, and he goes on and lists some of the nations and so on and how they're not to mix, jump to verse 3, you shall not intermarry with them, giving your daughters to their sons or taking their daughters for your sons, for they would turn away your sons from following me to serve other gods. Then the anger of the Lord would be kindled against you, and he would destroy you quickly. But thus shall you deal with them. You shall break down their altars, and dash in pieces their pillars, and chop down their asherim, and burn their carved images with fire. For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. Yahweh your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the people's who were on the face of the earth. It was important to God for his people to live separately and for them to understand that. Well, secondly, um, we see rules against the pagan cultic practices that, that um, are related to that. And so the mention of, of not interpreting omens and not fortune-telling and, and not approaching mediums and... and avoiding ritualistic self-mutilation, the cutting of oneself. Uh, um, this were part of some of the um, pagan traditions to um, grieve the, the, the passing of the dead and, and to you know, try to somehow help their passage, I guess, by showing uh, how much they're cared about by mutilating oneself, by cutting oneself. And we see practices uh, related to this type of pagan uh, practice, a religion as well, in the account later on, um, of the prophets of Baal and the, and the contest on Mount Carmel and the, and the, and the two uh, offerings that are, that are there. And, and uh, as they danced around calling on Baal to set down fire on the altar, they were cutting themselves and so on. And so God is aware of these practices of the people and telling Israel to do nothing of the sort. And even the tattooing, once again, this is, this is ritual, ritualistic. And there are some uh, ancient um, artifacts that, that demonstrate from this part of the world um, actually images of people with, with tattooing on their arms and shoulders and legs and, and things like that that were apparently uh, a part of their identification with their gods and their forms of worship at the time. And the haircutting as well. 
the particular way that they trim, and even in the same image, one that I saw in a text, I should have put it up here, I guess, um, uh, uh, this, the same figure of this Canaanite uh, warrior character has tattooing all over and also has a very neatly trimmed and shaped beard with a little, you know, it's all thin and got little curls and things like that. It's like the sort of thing you see barbers doing today where, the, you know, they're etching guys, you know, beards and stuff like that. Okay, so, so this raises the question for us then. Is it wrong for us to have two tattoos? It's going to come up, right? So let's address it, all right? Is it wrong for a Christian to have a tattoo? Well, does your tattoo today have anything to do with pagan ritualistic worship? If not, maybe it's not a concern. Because if we're going to focus in on that, then we're going to have to say, I hope you're not wearing any garments that have both wool and cotton or wool and polyester or cotton and polyester or any type of blend. And I hope you haven't trimmed your beard. And I hope you haven't trimmed your sideburns because those instructions are here. So let's just be careful that we recognize things that were God's rules for God's people at that time that were part of distinguishing them from the nations around them so that they didn't look like they embraced any of the pagan worship that those other nations around them embraced. So there were significance to those things at the time, right? I'm not encouraging you to go out and get your tattoos. You don't say, oh, Pastor Brian said it's cool, go get a tattoo. No, I'm not saying that. <laughs> there may be other matters of, of wisdom and consideration to be, in, to be there, involved there, okay? Um, but ask yourself about this principle. Are you doing things that identify yourself as one of God's children, or are you trying to identify with a part of culture that doesn't honor God. And there you have to ask the Lord what's right uh, as a matter of application. I'll say this. This is, this is not, I'm not totally going one way or another with this. I know a couple, another, a couple of Christian brothers who have come out of a very rough background. Noel talked about his background. I know our brother Lee has some difficult times in his past and so on. I, I, I know a couple of Christian brothers who after God changed their lives so much and they came to know him, they already had a few, you know, a little bit of body art of various types, but they wanted to now have a testimony to those people that they knew before. And they wanted to show what a difference God had made in their lives. They wanted to maintain contact. So what they did was they added tattoos that presented the gospel. So when they say, oh, you got some new ink there, they would share the gospel with them. Those guys maybe would never sit down and look at the Bible, but they would read the ink. It's clever. I'm, again, I'm not suggesting you go out and do that. I'm just saying, we are not the people of Israel at the time under the Mosaic law, and if we're going to try to pick on bits and pieces of the law, then we have to embrace all of the law. So we don't get to pick and choose. So recognize it for what it is and for what it isn't. Then we have the circumcision of the fruit trees, uh, which again is making it clear that the provision was from God and not from previous fertility rituals. So God called Israel to be holy like him by embracing a different code that set them apart from the pagan societies around them and B, that provided protection for all members of their community. We see the consequences for taking advantage of slave girls. We see that this person had to make compensation with a guilt offering 
that there was even the question of should this person be stoned to death? And, and so it was taken seriously, okay? So the people wouldn't just take and abuse however they pleased, even this vulnerable person in their society. Or forbidding prostitution. Prostitution was, as I mentioned, it was a regular part of the pagan worship. And for some families, maybe it was just a way to survive as a money-making sort of a thing. But God is making it clear, you don't follow the practices of the pagan people. God values your daughters. Do not profane them in this way. Do not abuse them in this way. And, and in fact, that could, lead, that could lead, lead to depravity throughout the entire society if you follow this practice. God strictly forbids the prostitution. And rules even against blood consumption. This is protection for the people. God understood the, the science of, of blood-borne pathogens, of, of things that could make people very ill or, uh, or even... Uh, you know, things that live in the blood, you know, that create cysts and, and so on and so forth. We don't want to get into all the ugly details of that. But God knew these things, and so he's warning them, cook the meat properly. They didn't need to understand. They knew that a lot of the pagan people around them ate raw meat, and they'd be tempted maybe to follow that practice. God says, no, you cook your meat, <laughs> right? Because he's caring for them out of his knowledge, out of his wisdom, though they didn't understand these things. He's giving them laws for their well-being. They didn't have to understand it. He is God, and he said so. So he's providing for the protection of all the members of their community. These are just a few examples. There are others throughout the the law code. And see, um, they're embracing a different code that reflected his values and character. We see that in the honoring of the Sabbath for rest and worship. He wanted his people to have a day off for their own well-being once again, but also so they would pause and take some time to focus on their relationship with God. They needed time with their family. They needed recuperation. But they also needed to acknowledge their God. They needed to take the time to do that. And so he instructs them to remember to do so, to remember the Sabbath. Also in the honoring of the elderly as even an extension of their reverence for God. Once again, God in His loving kindness wants to do what's best for the society. He knows that the elderly people generally have greater wisdom than the younger ones. He wants the younger ones to understand that they are to honor the elderly. And there are plenty of godless societies or societies that follow other gods that that even go so far as to promote euthanasia because they figure the elderly, once they're no longer very productive members of society, they're just taking up space, they're just taking up food, they're just making it hard for people to get on with their work because they're caring for their ailing parents and so on and so forth. God is making it clear that is not part of His value system. You stand before the elderly, you demonstrate honor to them. You give them deference. And in so doing, God considers it a demonstration of their reverence for Him. He attaches that to that instruction. And He reminds them once again that 
He is Yahweh their God. You can see that clear attachment. It's verse 32, if you need to look at it again. You shall stand up before the gray head and honor the face of an old man, and you shall fear your God. I am Yahweh. Respect for elders is an extension of reverence for God. So we see, uh, secondly, or uh, thirdly, sorry, and, and that point, uh, reflecting his values and character by treating others, including foreigners, with consideration and justice. In the last verses of the, of the chapter, we see those reminders, those, those warnings, that when a stranger lives among you, you shall treat them as well as you want to treat yourselves. And then there's the, the measure, uh, uh, the warning in verse 35 of, of no, doing no wrong in judgment, measures and length and weight and quality and so on. So when, when, when people come to your business, you measure out the full length of the fabric that they're paying for. Uh, there, there would be uh, scales when it came to buying produce or grain or any number of things. Um, other things of value that, you know, the scales were often used and there was a certain money per weight sort of a thing. And so God warns them to, to use even scales because there were practices, even back then, very common practices of, of people having, you know, little extra weight attachments that would go on one side of the, the scale to make it look like a person's buying more than they really were so they could charge them more. God warns them their society is not to be like that. They're not to take advantage of other people. So they're supposed to treat others, including foreigners, with consideration and justice. Well, so while it may seem like a little bit of an odd conglomeration of instructions from God, that there, there are some important principles here that are revealing, as I said, God's values, which in turn reveals his character. He is the true and just and righteous and loving God. So God called Israel to be holy like him by embracing a different code, and God calls his people always to honor him by living a different way. And so it still applies to us. Maybe not all the details of this Mosaic law code, but these key principles that we see really that the, the, all these other things can kind of fit under are these two things. Loving God above all else Loving others as much as we love ourselves. All these other things are just applicational points to those two big principles, which we see are clearly universal and timeless in God's economy. So let's just look at these two big things here. First of all, in uh, letter A, uh, he calls us to honor him by living a different way that sets us apart from societies that do not recognize his lordship. So just as the Israelites were called to live separately and to not live in a way that reflected pagan practices and so on, but to be clearly different, we are called to live counterculturally as well. We are called to live differently, to be clearly God's people, often in a godless society. Romans 12, 1 and 2. Many of you, if you've been around church for a long time, have memorized these verses. Let's not forget them, Romans 12, 1 and 2. Paul's writing, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship, the way you live. And this body is an act of worship. 
Do not be conformed to this world. Oh, that sounds familiar, doesn't it? It's like God telling the Israelites, don't live like the pagans around you. Here it is in the New Testament. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. You should have new values, a new way of thinking, thinking God's way about things. By the transforming of your mind, or the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. And that comes to those practical points of, you know, do I do my hair or my beard this way, or do I get the tattoo or not? You ask yourself, God, all of this is yours. What do you want me to do with it? What is good and acceptable and best? So you test these things through the renewed mind that values the things that God values and ask yourself, how therefore shall I live? 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 18 through 20. 1 Corinthians 6, 18 through 20. I had to trim this down just for the sake of brevity, because I, I look at something like this and, oh, I have to look at the whole context and I think, oh, there's so much. I should read these five verses before as well, but I've trimmed it down. Just verses 18 through 20. Flee sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexual immoral, sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own. That's not politically correct. That is not consistent with the message of our culture today, is it? Let's be honest. All you have to do is watch Disney Plus for a few hours, and you're going to hear about 20 times. You You have to do what you feel is right for you. Follow your heart. Be true to yourself. You are not your own. For you, as a Christian, were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. Glorify God in your body. So we are called to honor Him by living in a different way that sets us apart from society that does not recognize his lordship. We're also called always to honor him by living a different way that reflects the value he places on every person as an image bearer. So just as he told people of Israel, love me above all else, be holy as I am holy, love others, treat them fairly, loyally, honestly, even the foreigner among you, we are called to recognize that according to Genesis, every human being is created in the image of God. Every human being is an image bearer. The the whole notion of different races in this world is embedded in an evolutionary theory that denies the existence of God, suggests that we are just highly evolved animals, suggests that the different races sprung up and different times in different parts of the world and have progressed at different rates, and so therefore some races are more evolved than others. These are Darwin's theories. It's right there in the books. 
this, this was the justification for, for race-based slavery and caste systems and things like this for a long year. Not that those ideas were original to Darwin, because things like that, you know, race or you know, cultural, ethnic uh, type of prejudice goes back as far as you can go. But in the modern world, this was the justification was to suggest that some races are inferior to others because of a different stage of progress in the evolutionary process. That is completely inconsistent with God's Word that says that every human being can follow their origins back to Adam and Eve who were created in the image of God. So every human being is an image bearer of God. Every human being has innate self, uh, personal worth in God's eyes. And so God takes crimes against other human beings very seriously. He takes it personally. And so people are instructed to not act with prejudice against people based on the different background. We see even Jesus in, in Luke chapter 10. Luke chapter 10, we have the... Uh, the parable of the, of the Good Samaritan, right? And I won't read the whole thing, but most of you are familiar with it. You know, there was this tremendous hate, hatred between the Jews and the, and the Samaritans. The Samaritans were viewed by the Jewish people as mixed-race people because, because uh, many of them were, were still there uh, when the northern kingdom was, was taken over by the Assyrians. The Assyrians, uh, their practice... Well, let's back up just a little bit, a little history lesson, but there's relevance, okay? The Babylonians took, uh, took the southern uh, kingdom, right? And their practice was to basically just haul all the smart and healthy people away into deportation and try to re-educate them and, and so on and just kind of leave the poor and the weak ones behind and put some people in charge of them and so on. The Assyrians took a different approach where they took some of the smartest and brightest people and, and they relocated them in other parts of their empire and re-educated them and put them to work and then they took smart, bright people from the other parts and imported them into the other place. Rather than leave a vacuum, they moved other people. So they did a shuffle so that no one could kind of, you know, like gather together their own people once again for an insurrection. So they just did this, mixed them all up. So the, the Samaritan people were kind of a result of this after generations. The people from other parts, from other nations had been imported by the Assyrians and they had integrated. And so now you have the Samaritan people, the pure Jewish people from, from down in, in the tribe of Judah and Benjamin and so on that had been there around Jerusalem. Uh, they were still, they had maintained their separateness and so they looked at the Samaritan people as, oh, those mixed-race people. And they would have nothing to do with them. Right? They were compromised. They were et cetera, et cetera. Right? So you have the Good Samaritan, where Jesus is answering the question. He says, love your neighbor. He quotes this, this passage in Leviticus. He says, love your neighbor as yourself, from Leviticus 19. And so the smarty-pants uh, Pharisee says, oh, well, but who's my neighbor? And then Jesus tells the story of the Good Samaritan and elevates the Samaritan who treats another human being not from their society, someone who's supposed to be at enmity with them, treats them with dignity and love and care. And he says, there's your example of a neighbor. Right? So, so 
Jesus himself taught this principle of loving others regardless of background as much as we love ourselves. James raises the issue as well. In the book of James, James chapter 1, verse 27, says religion, in other words, you know, a, a, a Christian life in this context, religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit the orphans and widows in their affliction, right? Care for the disenfranchised and vulnerable in your society, and to keep oneself unstained from the world. Right? Live separately from the society that doesn't acknowledge God. Keep yourself unstained from the world. Care for those who are vulnerable. That's loving God and loving others. Uh, just immediately following that in James chapter 2, we see him providing a, a real-life illustration for Christians even as they gather for worship. He challenges them with this, James chapter 2, verses 1 through 9. My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, and if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, oh, sit here in a good place, while you say to the poor man, you stand over there, sit down here at my feet. Have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs to the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him? That's the, that's the distinction, those who love and respond to God. But you have dishonored the poor man, and uh, are not the rich the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you are called? If you really fulfill the royal law according to the Scriptures, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, quoting Leviticus, you are doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. You are not living according to God's code if you treat others with prejudice. Well, so here are the final thoughts, things to consider. The Israelites were called upon to obey God's code of conduct, whether or not they understood the rationale behind all of its parts. God had his reasons, some of which we understand in retrospect, but for the Israelites at the time, it was a matter of trusting and obeying. That was the basis of their acceptance by God, is that they trust him and obey him. Likewise, we today are called upon to embrace God's way of salvation and lifestyle by trusting and obeying what He has revealed to us through His Word. Remember, it begins with the decision for salvation. Right? Many people and many religions think that you have to do all kinds of things to somehow save yourself by doing enough good things or doing enough ritualistic things and so on. And counter to all of that, God's way is look and live. Look to the cross of Jesus Christ in faith, and I will give you eternal life. It was illustrated by the bronze serpent of the wilderness for the, the people of Israel. What kind of a strange instruction is that? I've been bitten by a venomous snake, and you're telling me to look at a, at a, at a metal snake on a pole? That's the solution you offer? Trust and obey. That's what God calls. He figured, he's created his own way. Trust and obey. 
and the result is life. Same for our decision of faith today. God says, accept what Jesus did on your behalf. Don't try to achieve salvation or forgiveness or eternal life for yourself. Just look and live, trust and obey. And that continues on through our life of faith. Ultimately, it comes down to these two things. Number one, loving God above all else and loving others as much as we love ourselves. We see God repeating these themes through his law as he gave them to his people, Israel. It must be that repetition is valuable. I was just reminded of a, of a kind of a funny illustration this week, uh, one that I had heard years before, but um, I don't remember all the details, but there's, there's an individual who comes and um, uh, stands before a, a, a group of people and sings for them. And when he's done singing, the people say, sing it again. And he thinks, all right, I guess I'm, I'm pretty good. They want to hear it again. So he sings again. And they say, sing it again. And he's going, yeah, they just can't get enough of me. And so he sings it again. And, and it goes on a few times. And, and, uh, and then finally he says, uh, well, you know, aren't you, haven't you heard enough yet? And they said, well, whenever you get it right, we'll be done but keep trying. Keep trying. God keeps repeating, repeating, repeating his instructions. Love him above all else. Love others like yourself. No matter how many times it takes for us to get it right, he keeps instructing us. We see it over and over again through his word. So it's good for us to be reminded and to ask him to help us to live accordingly. Let's pray. Father, we just thank you once again that we see your very character revealed through your word, even through these rules that you gave to your people Israel uh, so long ago. We see that you are a good and righteous and holy and loving God. I pray that you'd help us to respond and live in accordance with these revelations, uh, that we would be your people in this day and age and in our society. I pray that people would be able to look at our lives, look at the way we live, look at our attitudes, listen to our conversation, and see that we are different, that we live differently, that our very hearts have been changed, that our minds have been altered for the good as we look to you and seek to live according to your code, as we seek to reflect your holiness and your goodness, your justice and your grace to the world around us. Help us to be good reflectors, Lord, that others might see our good works and look to you and glorify you and seek to have that relationship with you that we enjoy, that others might come to know you and have eternal life. This is what we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Stand with me, please. I want to sing just, it's just a really brief, just kind of a little prayer song that I hope you'll take away with you today, just with all my heart. Stand, we'll sing it a couple of times. With all my heart, I want to love you, Lord, and give my life. Day to know you more.